Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. Welcome to this week's podcast, where we are joined today by Lieutenant General Richard Nugy, the Climate Change and Sustainability Lead for the Ministry of Defence since March 2020. General Nugy has served in the British Army for 35 years, including over a decade of senior leadership roles, both on operations and in the home base. Following his promotion to Lieutenant General in 2016, he was appointed Chief of Defence People before moving into his current appointment. In March of this year, he published Defence's strategy for tackling arguably the greatest challenge of our time, climate change. A strategy that sets out clear and ambitious targets for our armed forces. Defence, he argues, is on the threshold of innovation and modernisation through the integrated review. The climate change and sustainability strategic approach is about embracing essential elements of its modernization, which defense cannot afford to ignore. The imperative could not be clearer. Defense must and will act now. It is our pleasure to welcome General Nuji to today's podcast. General, very good afternoon and welcome to the Cal podcast. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Before, um, before we get on to talking about the MOD's climate change and sustainability strategy, um, and of course how it relates to Leadership. I think it's important we get to know a little bit about you as a, a leader. Um, you come from a uh, quite a successful family, I think it's fair to say. A rich history of service to the country, uh, most notably your mother as one of the iconic co-breakers from Bletchley Park, uh, your father a highly distinguished barrister, and your brother being the Right Honourable Lord Justice Nuji. So um, the Nuji family clearly is a, as a lineage of leadership. Um, did you know from a young age that you would follow in this tradition? Good afternoon. Great to be here. No, not at all. Um, in fact, I had no idea what I was going to do. I think my my first thing I ever wanted to do was be at a petrol station and fill up cars. Um, we had a local petrol station where I lived, and I thought that was a really exciting job because I'd be working with cars, which I quite enjoyed. I uh, so I didn't I didn't think of myself as a leader at all, and I joined the army um, really to uh, well because of my grandfather, who was a uh, he was a brigadier um, in the army in the um, in the Second World War. Uh, and um, he was, for me, actually, the most incredibly inspirational man. Um, and he's why I joined the army, but he's also, he's been, um, I mean, he died when I was 14, but he um, has been, to a certain extent, an inspiration for what I've done throughout my career. And who else would you say influences as you were growing up? Uh, obviously, your, your parents, and I, as you said, I had two quite, um, I think, quite exceptional parents. Um, but um, uh, the um, actually, when I got into the army, the influences that turned me from a sort of somebody who was frankly quite arrogant when I came out of Santos, uh, thinking I knew it all, uh, into a slightly more um, nuanced leader were the LE community in my first regiment. Um, actually, my first sergeant major, who was outstanding, who eventually ended up as a lieutenant colonel, a uh, guy called. Mac McPherson, um, who was in the Gunners. And then uh, slightly later on, I was adjutant to David Richard. He was uh, an extraordinary person to be adjutant to. And, you know, obviously ended up as chief of defence staff. But but actually, he and I had a really close relationship for quite a long time because of that. And I learned an enormous amount from him. Uh, so talking about your time in the in the army, certainly your formative years, and we spoke just before we um, before we went live, you first went to Sandhurst in 1982 with the cadetship and then returned um, a few years later for the full commissioning course, a regular commissioning course in 1985, commissioning to the Royal Artillery in 1986. So can you just describe your, yourself as a leader in your formative years as a, a young troop commander? So useless would be one of the phrases I'd use, but uh, <laughs> um, I think uh, what I was exceptionally lucky. In the first five years of my career, I did four tours in Northern Ireland as an infantryman. And um, I, I did once suggest, when I was adjutant, I suggested uh, that we take guns to Northern Ireland, and I was told absolutely no. Uh, you can imagine why, and that was in the very early 90s. Um, so I learned my trade um, in Belfast, to a certain extent in Londonderry, in Omar, in South Armagh, uh, particularly at South Armagh, where we lived in trenches for six weeks, um, having dug them. It took five days to dig the trenches, and we never really recovered from that because it was five days without sleep. We were resupplied by helicopter because it was too dangerous to uh, to get into us in any other way, and they just dropped the um, the rations and the water uh, from a net because it was too dangerous to land. So I learned very, very quickly and very early on about um, low-level tactical leadership, how to lead a group of soldiers who, frankly, were... Um, 
um, uh, frightened um, down in South Amar. We were attacked every day for the first nine days, and I, I won't forget that, as we were right on the border. Um, and I learned how to keep my people going um, in uh, difficult circumstances. It held me in good stead, both in terms of learning from my bombardiers. Uh, I didn't see much of my troop sergeant. He was the other side of the hill that we were dug in on. So I was having to do it pretty much myself. Learning about how bad some of the leadership can be. And I and I don't think that there, there were two people um, above me, if you like, who, frankly, I would not follow anywhere. And so there was an opportunity right at the word go to learn about leadership. I was also frustrated. I had joined the army to see the world, so to speak. That was part of the motivation. And all I was seeing was Germany. So I put myself out there to try and do different things. So took advanced training trip to Africa, to the north of Norway, to um, we walked the length of Sardinia, um, we canoed down the south of Norway, and um, as well as a couple of tours in Northern Ireland, and then I skied for the regiment, um, because I was bored, frankly, of just being in Germany. But in each case, taking soldiers with me, what I learned was um, put them under different strains, different stresses, and you get different outcomes. And that's something which I think is incredibly valuable. So I would say that my formative years, my first four to six years, were in incredibly valuable because I was constantly learning from my soldiers and, of course, from the LE officers and the warrant officers around me. I think I think that's a really interesting point you brought out there because leadership, people think of themselves developing as leaders by looking upwards at their seniors. But, but I think certainly in the formative years as a young platoon troop commander, you invariably learn more of those junior to you, those that have more experience and, and you're learning that leader-follower relationship. It's a really important use for you. And I'll give one example. The IRA was setting up a shoot uh, north of Omer in, in an area, and I'd put a VCP on the on the ground. It was a, a small village um, which had, had been out of bounds for the last couple of years, actually, uh, because it's where the Brighton bombings were uh, created. So I put a, a VCP in, and um, uh, lo and behold, uh, somebody who was very well known to us came into the VCP. So I thought, this is fantastic. So I kept the VCP on uh, the road, and I actually kept the VCP on the road um, for much, much longer because a series of people of interest, and of course, I thought I was doing good intelligence work by having people of interest and in their car number plates. And then I noticed that it was getting dark, that actually I could see that the headlights of cars doing a loop uh, around me um, uh, to keep me on the road. And what they were doing was setting up a shoot. And I pulled off the road and I said to my bombardier, who'd spent um, eight years in 14 Inc. Company, who was a really experienced um, individual. He, he eventually became a lieutenant colonel as well. And I, I said to him, uh, uh, bombardier, what do we do next? And he said, you tell me, sir, you're the leader. And it was one of the most fundamental, if you like, experiences for me, because it's, I, I realized that he had all the experience. He could have just told me what to do, and I would have got on, and I would have done it probably because I would have trusted him. But he asked me what I would do. Effectively, that's what he was doing. So I suggested a, a plan of attack or a plan of uh, campaign, if you like, for that particular little operation. And the IRA, by this stage, were looking for us in the fields. So they were coming after us. And so at that point, he said... That looks sense to me, sir. Let's get on with it. So, so immediately gave me confidence and the fact that I had come up with a conclusion. He would have said no if that had been wrong. I have no doubt because it would have put his life in, on the line. So it gave me enormous confidence, but I learned to trust people like him that they will reinforce what I want to do and also tell me if I'm going wrong. And that was so valuable as an experience after perhaps only a year and a half in the army followership from one of your bombardiers there without a doubt M moving on then uh, as we discussed before you've had nearly four decades now of service in the british army so how's your approach to leading evolved as you've transitioned into that certainly into the senior roles the strategic leadership roles so i think what's endured is uh, the people I, I joined the army. My, my, my grandfather, let's say I was age 14, um, my father took me to go and see him. Uh, he had retired. He'd, he'd commissioned in 1913. He'd retired in 1947. And so he absolutely spanned the two world wars. He spent the entire First World War on the Western Front, uh, got an MC and was, was wounded and had seen both his brothers uh, nearly killed um, on the Western Front with him in the Second Battle of Ypres. He was, a, he was a difficult man. He came back with what I think we could absolutely recognize as PTSD now, but of course wasn't at the time. And and um, then fought the whole way through the Second World War and, say, ended up as a brigadier. He, he said to me in this last meeting before he died, he, he, you know, usually it was 10 minutes with the grandchildren, grumpy, grumpy old man, frankly, and, um, and then he'd send us away and he'd talk to my father. In that last meeting, 
my recollection, my brother's recollection is slightly different, but my recollection is that he talked for three hours. And he talked for three hours about how much he loved the army, but not the army as, a, as an organization, but the army as a group of people. How soldiers, there was nothing better than soldiers in the world. That soldiers were the lifeblood of the army. That soldiers, they, they will, uh, they'll make you laugh, they'll make you cry, but they will really, really support you if you are worth supporting. I, and when I said earlier that that, that that sort of inspiration has held me through my entire career, that couple of hours changed my life completely because it was on the basis of that that I joined the army because I wanted to see what these soldiers were like. I wanted to see what soldiers were. What had so motivated my grandfather that 30 years after he had left the army, that was his dying comment to me, that actually it was about the soldiers and about the brilliance of soldiers. And there was nothing better uh, than a soldier. And so that has endured for me you know soldiers will let you down of course they will because uh, either they'll do it deliberately or they'll do it by mistake but actually they are absolutely brilliant people and they make me laugh and they make uh, uh, you know it's just a joy to lead soldiers that has endured throughout my career what's changed i think is um if you like the context of leadership leading in in northern ireland as a young second lieutenant um uh, with the ira looking for me in the fields um uh, and uh, leading being the deputy commander and chief of staff for corps headquarters in afghanistan doing the withdrawal of all troops from Af um, from afghanistan and leading as chief of defense people a fundamentally different context and you ha i felt i had to change my leadership style and change what i expected from my subordinates to a certain extent and the way that i treated my subordinates in every different way i had some of the brightest brigadiers in NATO, I would suggest. Um, in fact, my best brigadier was an Australian in Afghanistan. Um, and I had to be able to, to treat him with the respect he was due at exactly the same time as treating the private soldier on the gate with the respect he was due. But different types of leadership, different styles, different approach to a certain extent because the context was different. That's what I think I've learned more than anything. Do you think the army developed you appropriately for that? Was that self-taught? No. No, I don't. I don't think so. And I think I think too many people fall into the trap. And I'm going to be quite. I, I disagree with so many people on this. Too many people in the army fall into the trap that there is only one form of leadership, and that's the sort of leadership you need on the battlefield. And I I, I fundamentally disagree with that. Um, uh, you have to be able to lead on a battlefield. If you are a soldier, and if you are a, an officer on the um, battlefield, you have to be able to lead on the battlefield. And I think that's really tough at times and it can be very lonely and it is hard work going out in my case in in north Howard street um belfast going out the gate knowing that the ira is setting up a shoot for you knowing that they're targeting you knowing they're trying to blow you up that's exactly well it's not the same because i never experienced going out the front gate of some of the fobs in helmand but it's a, it's a similar psychological experience of my soldiers not wanting to go out and you have to lead them you have to be able to do that as an officer in the british army but I would argue, and, and the army are very good at t teaching you that, very good indeed. Most of our training, I would suggest, is that. But my experience, and I, I really hope it's changed as a result of, of Cal, but my experience is teaching you how to lead in a complex, uh, multifaceted um, staff environment or a multinational environment where actually it isn't going out the front gate, but it's understanding the nuance of what the Italians said. It's understanding the nuance that actually the Spaniard might have the best idea, um, even if you don't understand him fully. I don't think we're very good at that. Looking back at your uh, reference in your uh, bombardier there, do you think that our approach to developing our soldier leaders has improved? Yes, uh, it is traditional for people in my sort of stage to say, oh, they're not as good as they were. You know, they were really good in the old days. I think that's rubbish. I, I think um, the uh, the youngsters that we have today, the young junior NCOs, they're, they're, um, I think they're more intelligent, they're more educated, you know, more intelligent perhaps or perhaps not, but certainly more educated and more understanding and I think better leaders. It's really difficult for the army. And this is something I've wrestled with my entire career. You want to give people the opportunity to flourish. You want to give people the opportunity to really come out of their shell and, and be the best they can. That's what a leader should do, to try and bring people on to the best of their ability. But at the same time, we are 
despite everything else, we are um, an organization that relies on people doing what they're told. And that dichotomy of trying to understand where is the time when you say, okay, thank you for your idea, but we're going to do this, and understanding, actually, that's a really good idea, let's take it forward. In every environment I've been in, it's different but it's complex, it's difficult. And getting that right, of course, I haven't got it right every time, but getting it right is really, really difficult. But I think our, our junior leaders are much better than they were. It turns to your experience of, of, of people that you spoke about and the enduring nature of leadership. You've held a, a number of roles that are people-focused, personnel-focused, director man in the army, director general personnel, and of course, chief of defense people. And on that last one, I, I wondered if you could just expand for the audience. What does that role entail on... And what were your proudest achievements as CDP? So it's the it's the policy lead for defence for people. So anything that is related to the entirety of defence as opposed to the individuality of the Army, Navy or the Air Force comes to CDP. It's also, though, the role that leads the 56,000 civil servants in defence and um, was, although slightly less so now with the uh, construction of the Office for Veterans Affairs, I was entirely responsible, as much as anybody was, for the three and a half million veterans. So quite a lot of people. Um, and, and obviously families as well. Uh, but not all policies, uh, personnel policies, are um, at defence level. Quite a lot of uh, policies are at single service level. But there's a defence element to almost all policies, and some are reserved to defence. So, so a classic example is our pay is the same uh, across defence. Our, our pension is a single defence piece. And, and that's sensible uh, because actually we want to present, a, uh, if, if you like, a coherent and consistent front to the Treasury. It's much more difficult for them to pick a off individually, if you like, if, if, if there's a single single voice um, in defence. And it's much a much stronger voice if it's a single voice. So there are some things which are definitively at defence level. Another one which is at defence level, of course, reinforced by the single services, is transition to civilian life. That's another example. Uh, medical, the, the way that medical uh, policies work is, is, is the sort of CDP thing. And veterans. What are my greatest achievements? I mean, it, they'll sound odd to people, I think. One of them is, I think, what I tried to encourage more than anything um, is a different mindset. It is about leadership. It's a different mindset of how to lead. It's this idea that actually leadership in Whitehall is different, um, or in the army headquarters for that matter, is different to leadership on the battlefield, and one size doesn't fit all. I wanted to try and encourage that. I passionately believe that if you offer soldiers, because they've all been through a selection process, they've all been through training, they are therefore, by definition, I think, more informed than um, civilians. I I think, um, therefore, you can, to a certain extent, and there'll always be bad apples, but you can trust them to do the best they can. They've joined a service, and that's drummed into them from the word go. To my mind, you offering soldiers opportunity to make their own choices was something that I was really, really keen on. Of course, that can go too far. But all my policies were designed around trying to give soldiers, sailors and, and air personnel, choice and trying to change that mindset rather than it's always being top down this is what you're told to do get on with it to trying to encourage it happens to um, be coincident with a more inclusive environment and that's something i was really keen on but actually it's trying to encourage every individual to have a voice and to be able to use that voice when it's appropriate it's not always appropriate. What you, the last thing you want as the bullets are flying at you is a Chinese parliament. So we need to be clever about this. We need to be sensible about this rather than, um, uh, rather than slavish. There was that. I, I built that into my people strategy, uh, which uh, Defence is now taking forward. I built that to a certain extent. And one of the other things I'm quite proud of is the veteran strategy, which the Office of Veterans Affairs is now running. So produced a strategy which tried to improve the lot of veterans. And I took, if you like, as my text, the, the idea that every single one of us leaves the army eventually. Now, some of us leave in a box. That's unfortunate. That's a fact of being a soldier. But most of us, the vast majority of us, leave at the end of our time, whether the end of our time is when we retire or after three years or four years, sorry, or, or whenever. But we all leave after an experience of being in the Army, Navy or Air Force. And therefore, we need to start thinking about what is the best way of giving something to those individuals so they will flourish in civilian life as well as flourish in the army. And so a lot of my policies were trying to encourage people to think beyond 
the end of their service and try and think about how to integrate into society as well. And the veteran strategy was all about that. And then the final thing I was quite proud of is, is the NAFI was due to close in 2020. I managed to persuade the Treasury to back them uh, and say they will now stay open for as long as we can. And uh, hopefully the NAFI rebate, which I was gr- I grew up with, will continue for a long time. An institution in itself. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if I could just return to your, your point about civil servants, 56,000 civil servants in, in our in our forces. And I think when people reflect on the Ministry of Defence, perhaps they think of the three main services and they don't necessarily instinctively think of the, the critical uh, function and capability that our civil servants uh, that provide us. I wonder if you talk about your experience of that relationship between uniformed personnel and civil servants and how, that, how that's matured over the years and how that sort of joint one-team culture has matured over the years. I had a reverse mentor uh, the entire time I was CDP, um, always somebody as far away from my experience as I could get within defence. So usually female, in fact, always female, because uh, I'm male, always a civil servant because I'm in the services. And if I could, uh, somebody who wasn't in the personnel business, uh, somebody who was from a different part of the MAD. And the very first one I had worked actually in DDC in, in, in the communications world, uh, she volunteered. And... And I said to her completely bluntly and openly, I said, why, why are you in the Ministry of Defence? If you wanted to defend this country like I do, why didn't you join the armed forces? You know, come on, why, why are you here as a civil servant rather than as a member of the armed forces? Because actually, um, uh, uh, you know, I still have a sort of shades of being really quite arrogant sometimes. And I said, you know, the armed forces is what it's about, surely in the MAD. And she turned around and looked at me really angrily, actually. She, she looked at me and said, I want to serve my country as much as you do. But I know I'd be no good in the armed forces. And so I've found the only way that I can to serve this country as well as you do that makes a difference. And it left me about half an inch tall because I'd made all sorts of assumptions about civil servants, if you like. And here she was telling me that she had as much passion as I did about defending this country and about serving people and about serving this country in the way that we do in defence. And yet was doing it from a different angle. And that, if you like, coloured a lot of my judgment about civil servants. Civil servants were basically trying to do the same as us, but they'd chosen a different route, partly because some of them didn't believe they could do the route that we did, partly because some of them didn't want to for all sorts of circumstances and so on. But mostly they just wanted to do a really good job for defence. And when you take, when you think that is the approach of most of them, not all of them, of course, you'll still get some who are jobs worth, you'll still get some who are a complete pain, um, but you'll find the same in, in the services as well. When you take that approach, that actually what they're trying to do is the same as you, but they've chosen a different route to do that in the same way that somebody in the Air Force um, chooses a different route to somebody in the Army, then actually you look at civil servants in a completely different way. What you're looking at is somebody who's desperately trying to do the right thing at the right time for the people of defence. They have a disadvantage because the, the, if you like, the dominant culture of defence is the armed forces. There's two reasons for that. One is straight size. There are 150,000 of us. There are 56,000 civil servants, um, and that's not including reservists. And the other is, is, is perhaps um, more obvious, um, which is that our culture is an incredibly strong culture in the services, mm-hmm. and it tends to permeate everything that we touch. So our culture actually in the last pandemic, in, the, in you know, in this pandemic, has permeated the NHS to a certain extent. We, we just exude culture in a way that's incredibly powerful. Some people really dislike it. Some people see the value in it. And so I think there's, um, so, so it is not surprising that the dominant culture in, in defence, I would argue, is the armed forces culture. Civil servants have to be able to understand that and grow with that. Uh, and some find that oppressive and become difficult, if you like. But the vast majority actually welcome that. So I think civil servants, I've, I've learned so much from working with civil servants, technically leading them. I, I think actually we had a brilliant civil, civilian HR director um, in Siobhan Sheridan when she was here, um, but actually leading them and fighting their corner uh, in a way that was, I think, right for defence, but also right for the armed forces. I think one thing your example highlighted also there was the, the challenge function civil servants provide um, with that, a different way of thinking, perhaps. Um, it's a bit of cognitive diversity, and I know it's something the Chilcot Inquiry certainly brought up, but my experience, and no doubt yourself, so it's, um, it's an invaluable contribution they make in that regard. Absolutely. Um, I completely agree with that. Um, this year, of course, is a big year for climate change in the UK, with the government announcing 
arguably the world's most ambitious climate change targets, the 2035 reduction of 78% uh, in our emissions. And of course, with the UK hosting uh, COP26 this year. And from an AOD perspective, um, and specifically yourself, uh, launching the climate change and sustainability strategy in March of this year. I wonder, before we talk about the strategy itself, if you could just um, outline in your opinion, what is the scale of the challenge that we're facing here? So we're 50% of central government emissions. If you include the industrial base, the defence industry, we're somewhere between 2 and 3% of the UK's emissions. That is huge and is something uh, that will take a huge amount of time and effort to try and overcome. If we're going to do this, if we're going to pay attention to climate change, and I would argue we have to pay attention to climate change because it's happening to us, whether we like it or not, uh, as it is happening to everybody, um, then actually we really need to focus on it because just saying it's a problem is not enough. And, and I suppose my philosophy is on this is, is that we will become less effective if we pay no attention to climate change. It will do things to us that will um, not necessarily help us be an effective force. Uh, in fact, it will positively damage our ability to be an effective force, and it will damage our freedom of manoeuvre, and it will damage our ability to actually operate. So it is, if you like, I suppose the only similarity I've got is, is in the, um, the arms race of the Cold War, but it's more difficult than that. It's more difficult than that because... The arms race of the Cold War, we had we had sort of spies in Russia who could, or in the Soviet Union, who could tell us what they were doing, and then we could react. Um, I, I remember, I mean, you know, when I first started, it was still five years, well, um, eight years uh, when I actually first went to Santos, uh, before the, the, the Berlin Wall came down. And um, we had Soxmas, um, which was the um, uh, mission to the Soviets, if you like, and they were legitimate spies, as far as I could tell. As far as it just seemed to be, that's what they were. And Bricksmiths. So we knew what the enemy was doing. The trouble with climate change is whilst we could react to what the enemy was doing in the Cold War because we could see it, we don't fully understand what climate is doing to us. And it's over a longer period. And therefore, it's much more difficult to grab, oh, look, there's a new tank. And mm. uh, let's, let's, let's analyze it. There's no such concept in climate change as, as the new tank, which we can physically look at and then do something about. So it's a much more difficult thing to get your head around, but it's just as pernicious and it's just as damaging to us. And we'll still come second if we don't do something about it. And so our approach should be the same as what we've always been, which is trying to outdo our adversary. But the adversary is really elusive in this case and therefore much more difficult. And that's the mindset we've got to get into. And that's really difficult. We'll, we'll come on to mindset and certainly culture in a minute and how you how you change that and how you get people into the right frame of mind to, 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 to make a difference and make the changes we need. But turn to the approach. What, what is the approach? What's the strategy say? And, and what's the level of MOD's ambition? So the approach is based on three fundamental ambitions strategic ambitions, I called them, going out to 2050. Why 2050? Because that's what the uh, that's what the country signed up to, a legal obligation to be net zero by 2050. Now, I chose 2050 as just a, a marker in the sand, but three um, ambitions. The first ambition is to, I said, act and be, um, a, act as and be recognized as a global leader in climate and security. We should be one of the key countries in the world as part of NATO and as part of the US um, and us alliance of understanding what the impacts of climate change are doing across the world. So we're not caught unawares. So, so some of the security issues around climate, there's obviously humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, you could call that a security issue, and certainly it leads to um, potential security issues if, if you don't act on it. But there's, there's a much, much bigger one in many respects, which is the energy transition away from fossil fuels. We know from our history that if you back a country into a corner, and let's say that um, there's at least one country in the Middle East where 80% of its income comes from fossil fuels, from selling fossil fuels, oil. If you remove that because you've moved away from fossil fuels and towards green energy, that and you remove it fast enough that that country hasn't been able to diversify and adapt its, its income to something else, you're backing that country into a corner. And if you back that country into a corner, a lot of countries lash out. They might lash out at their people. They might lash out at the next door neighbor. They might lash out um, in the UN or whatever. Some of those can lead to conflict. And I think that, therefore, we need to be alive to the fact that this energy transition from 
fossil fuels to green energy, whether it's hydro, solar or whatever, is going to have consequences. It's going to change geopolitical relationships. It's going to change what is important in life. Is it oil or is it cobalt, of which 50% at the moment is found in the Congo, which is not exactly the best place to find it, frankly, but that, you know, it's, it's not exactly a stable country. But we need to understand that. We need to understand what our part to play in that. And then there's another type of security, which is in very, very simple terms. If you remove people's livelihood because climate change has stopped you growing food, those people move. We're an overpopulated world, and therefore they're going to move into an area where there are people already. You move dispossessed people into areas where there are people already and into cities, what do you get? You either get friction within the city or you get an absolutely perfect recruiting ground for radical movements such as al-Shabaab, such as Boko Haram or so on. And we saw this in ISIS. Um, we saw the Iraqis being um, unable to uh, till the land. They moved into the cities and ISIS just picked them off and used them as recruits. That's a conflict situation that we need to understand. That's a tension that we need to understand because that could well come back and haunt us. Be recognized and uh, act as a global leader. Understand that situation, work out what we need to do about it. The second is we need to adapt to a climate changed world. So the fact is the Arctic is going to melt um, in the summer in the next 10 to 15 or 15 to 20 years, depending on which scientists you listen to. So there's going to be a period when there is, if you like, free water in the Arctic. There's also going to be a period in the winter when it is ice. So our freedom of manoeuvre, if other countries are using that free passage of uh, water in the summer and we're not, then um, then we're, we are allowing things to happen which our freedom of manoeuvre lim or is limiting our freedom of manoeuvre. Between what's hard ice and free-flowing water is what the Canadians call disruptive ice, which is sort of mini icebergs, which then eventually become very large icebergs, which eventually become solid ice. It's, it was that, um, I mean, I don't know whether you, you've recently seen the uh, series The Terror. It was that which the ships were going through. It's this disruptive ice. Those ships, the, uh, the Terror and the Erebus, were state-of-the-art, hardened, but not icebreakers. The Russians are already hardening some of their ships. If we don't harden our ships, some of our ships, some of our um, naval vessels, then the reality is the Russians will be able to patrol those waters and we won't. It's removing our freedom and maneuver. So we need to pay attention to what is happening in the world. We need to pay attention to what the climatic conditions are doing so that we maintain the freedom of maneuver as a first tier um, military force to go anywhere, anytime, any place in the world. That's what we should be trying to do. And we need to make sure we can do that. So we need to adapt our, uh, and that's just one example, but we need to adapt our, our equipment. And the third is we need to reduce our emissions. And I would argue that we have the ability to get to net zero by 2050. I think it's it's fair to say that the department is reluctant to say that at this stage because they cannot see a definitive plan to 2050. And I think that's fair enough because I would argue, how many plans are we still following from 1991? I would hope the answer is zero. And that's the same distance between us and 2050. So whilst 2050 sounds good because it's a nice round number, if we were still following plans that were written in 1991, then I think we would be foolish in many respects, because so much has happened in the world between 1991 and today. So, so much will happen between 2021 and 2050. There may not be a fixed plan, which is why I wrote um, a plan with the team um, for one year and five years, and then gave indications beyond that rather than a firm plan. I think you can plan to five years. I think in this environment, you can't plan much beyond that, but you can have ideas and, and if you like, grand ambitions, which is what we've got. But reducing our emissions, it will take 30 years, I have no doubt. We'll never reduce our emissions to zero with the current technologies. Um, so our aircraft carriers, for example, we are not going to put new engines in. Um, it would be prohibitively expensive and probably not a good value for money, taxpayers' money. Our F-35s, we're not going to put new engines into our F-35s. Both of those are going to be around in 2050, we hope. The new Challenger 3 tank that has just been announced, I want that engine to be as efficient as possible, but the chances are it's still going to be a fossil fuel engine at this stage, unless, it, unless we can really develop industry quickly. But that doesn't mean to say that every piece of equipment is going to be fossil fuel based. It doesn't mean to say that every equipment is going to be an emitter between now and 2050. We have to get our emissions down. And so I talk about an irreducible minimum. Um, the irreducible minimum is, is probably cutting our emissions by a third. And then the irreducible minimum we offset using our land. 
we're incredibly lucky. We have responsibility for 2% of the UK's landmass. We own 1% of the UK's landmass. We've got every type of landmass that the UK has, whether it is mountain, um, shoreline, um, bog, peat, grasses, whatever it is um, we have in our inventory of our landmass. We have worked out that we should be able to sequester, i.e. capture carbon up to about um, 1.2, possibly as much as 1.5 million tonnes. So we have to get our emissions down to below that and then we've reached net zero. I think we can do that. I think we've got a plan to do that. I think technology will help us enormously um, uh, as we go down the road. But I think at the moment I could say that we can do that. That's the ambition. That's what the strategy is all written about. Jenny, you presented a, a very compelling, if not slightly concerning picture of the challenges ahead, although not surprising. Significant threats, clearly, but huge opportunities as well. And yet you have said, and you've been quoted as saying, defence is not taking this or has not taken this subject, climate change, seriously enough. And what's required is a serious cultural shift within the MOD. So how are we getting after that? Because when people look at significant problems like this, they, the sort of default is, is policies and, and structures and, and, and platforms, the hard stuff, if you like. Changing culture takes, takes time and it takes a huge amount of effort. And that in itself is complex. So how do we get after the cultural change we need to get after the climate changes? So I think um, I, I spent, as CDP, I've spent quite a lot of time thinking about culture. I would always say that somebody who actually says we need culture change needs to break it down into what does that mean? And I think it means a number of things. I think we do need to change the processes. Uh, I've spent a lot of time talking to commercial, a lot of time talking to industry, talking about contracts, talking to finance, um, to DG finance, um, about how you can change the ability of, for example, the IAC, the Internal Audit Committee, to reject things, and, and we're already seeing it in the JROC, uh, the uh, Joint Requirements Oversight Committee, um, reject things that have not seriously considered this. It doesn't mean to say that we'll always go with the greenest answer if there is very good reason for not doing so. But at the very least, we should consider it and we should absolutely make sure that we are looking at it seriously. Changing the process is one thing um, we do need to do. Changing the uh, culture of industry for our um, uh, industry partners, which we're working well towards. We've got the De Defence Suppliers Forum, uh, where what we're trying to do is make sure that industry understands exactly where we're coming from, which is to say, we want to work in partnership with you. We want you to innovate as much as possible to reduce emissions. And at the same time, um, uh, we want to have the flexibility to change our requirements if a more, if a more um, energy efficient and uh, emission efficient um, outcome is offered. Interestingly, and I'll just give this a tiny vignette, um, on Thursday I opened um, our three latest buildings on the training estate which are now net negative. They give back more energy than they use. They are the most sophisticated buildings of their type in government and that their, their model has been taken by the Department of Education, Department for Health and Social Care. So a fantastic innovation which the MOD has enabled. When I went to phase the phase one buildings at West End Camp, I said as an aside, um, uh, the minister was opening them, but I said as an aside to the head of the company who was making them, you've got a lot of embedded carbon in this building. How can you reduce embedded carbon? And I said it as a slightly flippant comment, you know, uh, making myself look good, supposedly. But he took it seriously, he took it very seriously indeed. And he, uh, when he, uh, when I opened the buildings up in Nescliffe last week, he turned around and said, he turned around and said, I've reduced the embedded carbon by a third. On the back of your comments, I've reduced the embedded carbon by a third. I've looked at every single aspect of this building from the loos to the basins, to the walls, to the uh, uh, concrete footing. It's a transit accommodation, so it's, um, it's, it's not exactly um, SLA, but said, I've looked at every single thing and I've reduced it by a third and the money that I've saved I've put into solar panels and therefore this is a more efficient building than the last one because I've got more solar panels on the roof for the same cost. So there's an example of working with industry. So we've got to do that. We've got to change um, the culture which turns around and this is this I think is the most fundamental thing that I have found when doing this work is to turn around and ask the question where is the overlap between enhanced military capability and reduced emissions. So what I'm not suggesting is that we spend tons of money at this point on just reducing emissions. 
Where's the military capability advantage of that? But if I can find a way, and if the bright young things of the armed forces can find a way of enhancing our military capability at the same time as reducing our emissions, that must be worthwhile. And that's the mindset we've got to get into, that this is opportunity rather than threat. Now, I think too many people still see this as a threat. It's either a green army or it's an efficient and effective army. I think that's not true. I think it's not a zero-sum game. I think there is a win-win here, which is that you can have a greener army which is better and is more effective. And I'll give just one example. If we can produce... if if So in Helmand, in Bastion, if instead of um, having a whole load of uh, generators that were diesel-orientated or diesel-driven, we had had solar panels, three things would have happened. One is we would have reduced the logistic resupply of diesel into Helmand. I don't think we should ever forget that the most senior British Army officer killed in uh, Afghanistan was on a logistic resupply. Now, he was an infantryman, he was a lieutenant colonel commanding officer, but he was on a logistic resupply. If we could reduce the number of logistic resupplies because we we're using solar panels rather than uh, diesel engines, then um, that would um, free up that infantry that was supporting that logistic resupply. It would reduce um, the risk to life and the cost of life in this particular instance. And it, and it would be cheaper. Um, we worked out that a gallon of diesel, so four and a half litres of diesel, costs somewhere in the region of two to three hundred pounds to get it to Helmand. That's the first thing it is. Second thing it would do is it would be better for the environment. The third thing it would do, though, is when we left Helmand, when we left Bastion, my original plan was that we would take 28% or the, the UK plan, of which I was sort of part of, would take 28% of its equipment out by air. When the convoys were attacked on the border with Pakistan, primarily through the Khyber Pass, where they they destroyed, the Taliban destroyed a number of convoys going through the Khyber Pass, we changed our policy completely, which was that um, 80 to 90% would go out by air. What's the point in taking diesel generators out by air? So what we did is we left them for the Afghans. Now, that has a positive effect on the Afghans, or should do, and um, reduces the amount that we have to take out by air and the cost of that. If we'd left solar panels, they would have taken no maintenance and they would not have needed degrees in the types of generators that we had and the maintenance and the spare parts and all the rest of it in order to be able to make them run. And, oh, by the way, the diesel. But we didn't. We left them diesel generators. I should think it's extraordinarily unlikely seven years later that any of those diesel generators are still working. The diesel's probably still being used on vehicles. The spare parts probably aren't there. And they probably don't have the um, engineers who are trained on those particular generators. Solar panels would have done all of that. So So there's real incentive for changing our culture, which turns around and says this is an operational advantage rather than a threat to the way that we work. And that's where we've got to be sensible. Having a tank that can't refuel in seven minutes, having a tank that doesn't have a range of 300 miles, having a tank that will um, doesn't have the armor on it to protect its people is not where we're going. Where we should be going is turning around and saying we should have all of that. Can we find a green energy solution to it? That's the culture change we've got to try and make. And looking at leadership in relation to culture change, you've spoken about the need for um, leadership at the highest level in order to drive this. Are our strategic leaders doing enough? Yes and no. Um, I'm sure they could do better, but it's very arrogant of me to say so because they've all got very different pressures. But um, I think being imaginative and allowing people throughout their organisation to be imaginative, I think is really important. And that's the leadership we need is to to welcome ideas from below rather than deciding that the senior officer in the room is always right. And that's the sort of leadership that I tried to um, in, uh, encourage, which is this leadership of uh, asking questions and not knowing all the answers just because I was the senior person in the room, So, uh, and, and I, which I frequently was. So, so, you know, actually just trying to encourage people to give their own ideas out of that comes really good ideas, which you can then act on. So there's a leadership challenge in terms of the style of leadership, but there's also a leadership challenge in terms of actually making some clear decisions in support of this this uh, campaign of, of, of being more um, climate change aware and actually doing something about it. And here, I, I, I'm going to sort of sing out MinDP. MinDP, uh, the strategic approach that was published in March was the government, technically the government response to my report. My report was 120, 130 pages long. Strategic approach was 25 pages, easy read. MinDP refused to put anything in that that he did not think he could absolutely guarantee he would deliver. 
That's a, a level of leadership. He then, before uh, it was published, turned around uh, to the department and said, I want on my desk at the appropriate time in the autumn a plan for how we're going to get after this in 2022 and beyond. And I want detailed business cases and I want detailed answers on how we're going to get from A to B and how we're going to answer Nuji's five-year plan. That's leadership from MinDP. What we need to do is make sure that that leadership is followed down through the permanent secretary, um, through CDS, uh, both of whom are immensely supportive of this uh, campaign, and through then the people who actually have to do the sort of nug work of it and, and, and working out how much things cost. And that's always going to be a compromise. But I would argue that we always compromise operational capability to some extent, to the minimum extent we can get away with, because we can't afford everything we want. We've never been able to afford everything we want as an armed force except a major war. So, so we've always compromised to a certain extent on what we want. It's no different compromising what we want for the better good and the better good is climate change in this case. So you set the case for the, the importance of good strategic leadership and our senior decision makers. What about the tactical commanders and our... Our, our soldiers and officers at the, at the junior levels of our organization, are they doing enough to, to realize your ambitions? So I don't think they've been given the opportunity enough yet. And uh, here I would say this is about incentivization. What is their incentive? What you won't find in my report is a moral argument saying we ought to do this because it's the right thing to do. Um, because we've been talking about that for 25 years and it just hasn't worked. So it's got to be more than a moral argument. It's got to be an argument based on facts and it's got to be an argument based on advantage and operational capability. So we need, therefore, to incentivize people to take advantage of this. And I, I give just two examples um, uh, of contrast. The base commander at Portsmouth has been given total control of his budget as a base commander. And so every saving he makes but, um, uh, to emissions, which also happens to be more efficient, um, to the heating bills and everything else, he can reinvest and make more and more and more savings and therefore more and more and more effectiveness and, 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 and efficiency. That's brilliant. He's incentivized to do so because he can see the benefit, not for himself, but he can see the benefit for his, his command, um, which is Portsmouth Naval Base in this case, uh, to be able to do, um, to be able to get after it. You then take a garrison commander in the army and they have no incentivization at all. The Air Force is the same. No incentivization because they don't see the benefit of this. So training estate can generate lots and lots of money and savings from the maintenance of, uh, or not maintaining these brand new buildings and, and the vastly reduced energy costs for these new buildings because they're actually giving energy back. But if they don't get the, the reward for that incentive, there's a good argument to say, why would I bother? And it's too easy to say, I won't bother. So it's about incentivization of the lower, lower end. Take a really simple example. I just handed back my kit. Now, there's a lot of laughter when I hand back my, handed back my kit because I had my 1982 or my 1986 webbing uh, that I took out to Northern Ireland, most of which was jury-rigged by myself because there wasn't any decent webbing to be had sort of thing. I still had 58-pattern webbing. webbing. I mean, it is extraordinary that um, one of the three helmets I had handed back was still a steel helmet that re was recognizable in the First World War, which is what I started with. Uh, and I handed back two other helmets um, as well as three, set, three respirators. A lot of laughter, but I had handed it all back. I had religiously carried this stuff around from house to house to house to house to house. And my wife got more and more and more fed up with these boxes of stuff that was just held on to because I'd never been asked to hand it back. And I handed it all back actually last week. If you incentivize somebody to hand stuff back and it could be recycled, and you said, uh, you know, a, a simple thing like, you know, a pound an item, doesn't, doesn't matter what the item is, a pound an item, if you hand back, like I did, 350 items or something, um, then you'll get 350 quid. There's an incentive for keeping hold of your stuff just so you can hand it back, rather than just chucking it in the skip where it's of no use to anybody. Now, that's a pathetically small example. It's the, it, it probably won't work, but it's that sort of idea of incentivization, which I think would be really beneficial to our people. I was just uh, thinking of the QMs departments across the country, the horror they'd be facing with the, uh, the deluge of kit that we're coming back in under that incentive. Uh, looking at our operational effectiveness, you're absolutely right. Clearly, it needs to have our raison d'etre is, is, is to deliver on operations. Um, and no strategy is going to be successful unless we can do that. But we are interoperable by design, and it's highly pro probable, as our, as our history has shown us, that we will deploy in operations alongside partners and allies as part of a, a multinational force. Are there um, are other nations' militaries as committed to climate change as we are here in the UK? And is there potential for tension between future partners if we don't share the same ambitions? So it's a really, really um, important question, and it's a really good question. 
I've been invited uh, next week to speak to the US Army Climate Change Working Group they've just, just set up because they think our thought leadership is ahead of theirs in this particular environment. I actually think what they've done is um, ahead of us, but um, they think the thought leadership is ahead. NATO has, um, uh, in the last uh, 12 to 18 months, really woken up to this in, in the NATO 2030 strategy. And it's one of the six big items, if you like, in NATO 2030. And there are a number of papers going around NATO at the moment um, in draft to try and answer Jens Stoltenberg's, um, as the NATO Secretary General, um, his plea to try and take this um, incredibly seriously. And funnily enough, they have, when NATO was, when the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, um, so Sir Stu Peach, um, asked NATO to... Uh, to try and get their act together on this from a military perspective, they came straight to us and NATO uh, asked us what our, our policies were. So so in a sense, there's a bit of thought leadership there as well. And, and NATO's nascent policy looks remarkably like ours. Um, it's not the same, uh, but I think it's either it's either extraordinary coincidence or um, actually uh, they have used ours as a, as, a, as a think piece, which is really, really helpful. But individual countries, they vary. Um, Holland, uh, the Dutch are doing a lot on this. Uh, the French are, uh, are doing quite a lot on this. Um, uh, there are other countries in, in European NATO that are doing bits, but there are other countries which just aren't doing anything at all. So I've had two countries, uh, one uh, inside NATO and one the other side of the world, uh, turn around to me and say, um, what's your secret? Because every time we mention this as a way of greening the military, um, it's thrown back at us uh, by our politicians as that's not our business. And, 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 and that's the problem, is that what they were trying to talk about is greening the military. What I'm talking about is enhancing our military capability in a, in a changing environment. And that, that framing of it is different. So so there is, um, so there are patches of, of, of stuff which is as good, if not better, than us. There's, there's patches which are, frankly, uh, not paying attention to us at all. But I think there's a really, there's a really important point you should also bring up, which is interoperability. We've got to be interoperable with our NATO allies. It was, it was the head of the, the Norwegian Navy who turned around to me and said, you know, if I put hydrogen in my ships or ammonia in my ships, and you haven't in UK, every time I come across the North Sea, I'm not going to be able to refuel. So I can't do it until you move as well in the same direction. The interoperable piece is really, really important. Basically, it's, the, it's a shift that we haven't had to deal with for the last hundred years, is that there are so many different types of energy, um, green energy that are out there. There is choice. So we could have a choice, different choices by different countries for different um, energy solutions, um, which really hasn't been the case because it's been oil-based um, uh, over the last hundred years. We need to take advantage of that by laying down and I'm disappointed that NATO is not uh, asking to lay down. So, for and perhaps it can't at the moment, which, uh, to be fair. But say, for tanks, we're going to have the following fuel system. For um, ships, we're going to have the following fuel system. It may be a completely different fuel system, but we're going to have a single fuel system across NATO for a particular um, class of vehicle or equipment. That, I think, we will need to have, which will limit some of our capability um, to, to innovate, but actually is really important so we remain as an alliance that can work together. I'm right in saying that you see the UK, as you say, as a thought leader. I mean, you've got it in a, you know, one of the, the pillars of the strategy is global leadership. It's a key role for, for the UK in driving those conversations and, and in turn driving behavioural change in the international community. Yes, and I, I've worked very hard with the international community to try and encourage a similar thought process to what we've been through. And I've spoken to the Five Eyes community. I've spoken to um, uh, as disparate countries as Japan, Chile, Brazil, um, uh, and then European countries um, uh, to try and generate a sense of this is something that is going to affect all of us and we all ought to be um, interested in this and therefore, you know, uh, we don't have all the answers, of course we don't, but you should be looking for the answers just as much as we are. And final question, Jenna, before we uh, hit the quick fire round, are you optimistic about the future? What's the biggest challenge facing the MOD in meeting its ambitions to, uh, to deal with climate change? So yes, I'm optimistic uh, because I'm I'm an optimist at heart, and I genuinely believe if we put enough effort into it, and I think the Americans are pushing us this way now, um, uh, technology will come to our aid. I think we can get to net zero fifty without any innovative technology which hasn't been designed yet. I, I think there is. A, all through our history, we have shown that actually, if we put our minds to it, technology will come to our aid and we can solve the problems. I, I, I passionately believe that is the case. It would, you know, it, it's too depressing not to believe that, frankly. So I think we can do it. And I think we will do it. And I think that technology will come to our aid. That's that's the sort of the, the, the optimist bit. Um, what's the biggest challenge? The biggest challenge is recognising that this is something that we have to deal with, despite the fact that it is a long burn. It is, if you like, 
um, the urgent always trumps the important. And we're more susceptible to that than many other departments. Um, so whilst we think long term, we always act short term. And so what we've got to do is make the important urgent. Uh, that's how we've got to operate and we've got to think in terms of making sure that climate change becomes an urgent problem rather than just an important problem. It was very noticeable in, in 2019 and 2020, um, climate change was the second most important. But in 2019, it was the second most important to the economy. In 2020, it was the second most important to COVID. It cannot afford to remain the second most important to every other thing which is urgent in the future. And persuading and, and distilling that through the MOD is going to be really, really tough. But it's what we need to do, to say the country. We're going to finish on our customary quickfire round. So uh, first question, who's your most inspirational leader from history and why? So my most inspirational leader is Shackleton. Uh, why? Um, a, he brought everybody home through that extraordinary 1915 trip. But actually, more importantly, um, because his style of leadership was ca compassionate but firm. And it was from the front. His style of leadership was one where he listened to his crew. He sympathized and empathized with his crew in a way that showed true leadership, but at the same time was prepared to do the hard yards himself. Um, and that, that epic journey in the James Caird little, little boat is just extraordinary and was prepared to take risk on behalf of his troops. That, I think, is true leadership in our style. A legendary figure. Most valuable leadership lesson you've learned? I suppose I would say, and I've sort of hinted at this, change your leadership to the context, but never lose your character. I am what I am. I am who I am. But, and that's not going to change. But changing the style and the way that I treat people, and the, or not the way I treat people, but the way, the way that I, um, I operate will change depending on the context. I always talked about um, a, a sort of up and atom grenadiers type leadership. You need that. But at the same time, that doesn't work in Whitehall. In fact, it's the, it, it works exactly opposite you in Whitehall. It works opposite you in a, in a, in a peaceful environment. And so you need to be able to, um, to, be able to uh, adapt your leadership style. But I would say it's always easier if you approach circumstances with a thinking humility. In other words, um, not being humble just because you're a, a, for the sake of it, but being humble because actually, and a humility, uh, because you, you should recognise that you don't always have all the answers and allow other people to give you the answers as well. With hindsight, then, what would you tell a young second lieutenant Nuji straight out of Sanders about leadership? Listen to others. They have ideas too, and they might just be more experienced than you and never be afraid to learn. A final question, one we ask all our panel. However, I think you've answered it in the, uh, the entirety of the session today. What is society's biggest leadership challenge in the future? So I think the leadership challenge of this is to persuade society that climate change right, requires action by you, by me, and by government, and by business. It's not someone else's responsibility. It's all our responsibility. That's a huge leadership challenge across society. General Nuji, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Langley. It's been a great pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed what for me was a very honest and thought-provoking account of the responsibility we all have towards changing our thoughts and behaviours in relation to climate change. What struck me first and foremost was the narrative from General Nuji today. I think, at least I hope, that few would argue of the importance of climate change today. It is the issue of our time and also of the imperative for change if we are to turn the tide and face the seemingly unimaginable threat that climate change poses to our world and our way of life. Our responses to it, however, are more than just a moral responsibility as important as that is. As General Nuji argues, it is also about sustaining and enhancing our operational effectiveness for us, our raison d'etre. If we do nothing, we will inhibit our ability to be an effective fighting force. It will limit our freedom of manoeuvre and erode our licence to operate. And I hope the parallels in the business world are self-evident there. Despite the urgency and global effort required to overcome climate change, General Nuji does, however, offer an optimistic picture for the future, addressing what he argues are misconceptions that defence is either green or it's capable. It is possible, he says, to enhance military capability at the same time as, for example, reducing emissions. We can have a greener army that is more capable and more effective. And he encourages us to see climate change as an opportunity rather than a threat, which I think is a really important message. It is about building something rather than taking something away. It is about developing operational advantage. And again, the parallels across other sectors are hopefully clear. In the podcast, General Nuji outlines three fundamental ambitions. First, 
to act and be recognised as global leaders in climate and security, second to reduce our emissions, and third to adapt to a climate changed world. And change of course requires leadership. At the heart of leadership is the leader, the individual who inspires others, often through the force of their personality and their character. The leadership is contextual. There is no one form of leadership, no single formula for success. It is multifaceted and not one size fits all. Change your leadership to the context, General Nuji argues, but never lose your character. Finally, he argues, one of the biggest challenges is recognising that climate change is a long-term issue, but that even though we think long-term, we often act short-term. The urgent always trumps the important. We need, therefore, to make the important urgent. That is how we've got to operate. We need to make climate change an urgent problem rather than just an important one. It can no longer afford to be the second most important thing to every other thing that is urgent in the future. Ultimately, he concludes, climate change is not somebody else's responsibility. It is all ours responsibility. If you like what you've heard today, please do subscribe to our podcast. Please also share and comment. That would be much appreciated. For more information on leadership in the British Army, do visit our website, Centre for Army Leadership. And of course, follow us on our social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn.